You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Elric Kane. Thanks for having me back. This week, we are looking at the 1979 film from director Ivan Zulueta, Arrebato. The film stars Esuebo Poncela as Jose, a director who's dissatisfied with his own work. He soon meets Pedro, played by Will Moore, a filmmaker of a different sort. Now, as a warning, we're going to be getting to spoilers galore, including a lot of discussion at the end of this film, I'm sure. But Arabato is not the easiest film in the world to find, unfortunately. But it is out there, and I really can't recommend it enough. So proceed at your own risk. Now, Elric, when was the first time you saw Arabato, and what did you think? To say it's not the easiest film to find in the world, I love that because one of the reasons I'm so excited about today is I have never had a conversation with another living human about this movie. So I've been having to hold in my kind of love of this film until this moment because I don't know a single person who's seen it, let alone heard of it for the most part uh, in the U.S. Uh, I, you know, I was uh, at a video store called Odd Obsession in Chicago about eight years ago, and they had a VHS of this film but it had a little sticker on it saying no subtitles, Spanish language, no subtitles. So the image instantly caught me, but they also had something that compared it to Videodrome. So there's another sticker that also caught my attention, but it's the poster that you, I'm sure you'll be posting with the episode, which is very evocative that Zulueta uh, actually illustrated himself. Three people kind of caught in the light of projection uh, against the screen. And uh, so it really like caught my attention. I read the back and I was like, what is this movie? But of course, I'm 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 one thing. I'm a bit of a stickler for is not watching something if I'm not going to be able to really fully un- experience the movie. So I, as I didn't speak Spanish, I was like, I'm going to sit on this and wait. And I waited a couple of years and I thought about it again. And uh, for whatever reason, and as you kind of probably know, I have a bit of an obsession with possession. I kept thinking that this is going to have kind of have that kind of power. And I eventually found that there was a German copy, German DVD online, and I couldn't understand the German. So I wasn't sure that it had English subtitles, but I had the suspicion because English is so popular in German to buy it. And I bought it and it had the subtitles, perfect transfer. So if anyone's listening, that's a great copy and a cheap copy you can get on eBay. The film, you know, really was as rewarding in a sense as the first viewing of a movie like Possession. It's it a lot of it isn't uh, fully consumable on that first viewing. It it forces you to think. It lingers in your head for a long time. And coming back to rewatch the film 
with this in mind and having to kind of really dig in really helped open it up because structurally, like uh, any film that's kind of told out of sequence, it makes a lot more sense on a second viewing because you're, you you remember a few things that will kind of tidbits that help you along. I think it's really one of these truly great movies to, that has yet to be discovered by, you know, probably the majority of people. I came at this one kind of sideways. I didn't see this uh, at a video store or anything. I'm a, a fan of rapture films. I love good Christian propaganda. There's just something about it. You know, the Left Behind series, all of these different films. There's the, the I'm trying to remember which one it is, where it's like uh, Gary Busey and Howie Mandel and Margot Kidder all in the same movie. And there's <laughs> like, you know, Mark of the Beast tattoos, all this kind of stuff. So for a hot second before God Awful Movies came out, I had actually entertain the idea of like hey how about we do a side podcast and it's just rapture films and then they they kind of came in filled that void did a, a, a much better job than i ever would have hoped to have done and also are watching a lot of horrible movies that i don't think i ever could sit through so anyway the english translation of Arabato is rapture so i found it by doing searches and coming across this movie called Rapture. So I'm like, oh, great. A Spanish language Rapture film has nothing to do really with the <laughs> Rapture, though that is a kind of a translation of the word. And that could be kind of what is happening in the film. But there's could be part of it. Yeah. Could be. But there's many types of Rapture that happen um, and mostly that uh, euphoria that we feel or being enwrapped in something, being captivated by something. There are many different types of rapture that are happening in here and possibly not the Christian rapture. So uh, we'll kind of put that one on the back burner for for now. The film Arabato, done by director Ivan Zulueta, who had really only directed one other feature film before this and had done a ton of shorts, uh, experimental short films. And that experimental uh, vibe really goes into this movie. And one of the filmmakers, Pedro, is an experimental filmmaker. The other main character, Jose, is also a filmmaker. So it's really this interesting thing. It's it's a movie about making movies, but not necessarily in that kind of Hollywood uh, Sunset Boulevard type of mold. You know, uh, it's not a La La Land for sure. But it does have a shut-in like uh, Sunset Boulevard. Yes, one guy's yes. kind of a shut-in. So you know, at least at first, and then his move. It's interesting to see how he changes when he goes from country life to city life the thing that really struck me initially on watching this is the structure of the film and to your point i don't think i would have been able to understand this at all without subtitles just because of the shifting narrative and how important the voiceover is to this film yeah it's got that um What's the word? Diaristic, I guess. Like uh, a lot of avant-garde, American avant-garde films that were made that almost feel like uh, uh, essays or diaries, first-person camera, experimental avant-garde imagery that just keeps coming. And the with if it was, without those voiceovers to it, like a diaristic film, you just have imagery of landscape or objects and things. And this is what really holds it together. And in this case, it really uh, – also the, his voice at the start grabs you because it comes right out of like a horror B-movie. 
you know, it sounds like a, a, a very different tone because something's happening to him. He's changing. It's almost that's almost where I start the kind of Cronenberg comparison. Does feel like it's uh, a body horror in a sense. It's it wasn't really something you consciously think about when you're watching it. So I, yeah, I agree with you. I think the voiceover to give you an insight as to what's happening to one character and how it connects to the other without it, I think I would have been completely lost. Because our main two characters are really only sharing the same space uh, in two scenes. And the rest of it, or I should say two sequences, and then the rest of it, they are apart. We start off with Pedro, and we don't necessarily know who he is, what's going on. And we see and hear him. We hear his voiceover, and he is uh, explaining this uh, film footage that he's putting together, this audio cassette that he is popping out of a machine and, and putting into this package. And it's kind of like last will and testament kind of thing, where he is going to put this in the mail to someone who we don't necessarily know yet and send this off. And if you get this tape in this film it means that i'm probably not alive and you will need to come back to my place and pick up the last reel so that you can see what has happened to me such a great way to set up a movie such a great way to present this mystery especially with a filmmaker characters i think a lot of it is about not feeling like the real real life is enough and i think that's what a lot of this narrative a lot of the stuff i as a cinephile uh, you know, as somebody who spent, and, and, and I know you, it's the people who spend all our time thinking in, about movies, watching movies, and then in both our cases, talking about movies. It, it's really a big dedication to something that isn't necessarily strictly part of what most people consider real life. And it, I think it is a search for something more, a world within a world kind of an idea. And I think we're seeing the, especially the chase of the for filmmakers mystery. And so I think to hook one filmmaker uses the hook to hook in and reel in the other filmmaker in a, a very, very brilliant way that I think has just a classic setup. Uh, and I, th- I think especially necessary when you're making something as kind of avant-garde as this to have some of those like really clear traditional hooks. One another nice thing that they do is then they kind of pull the rug out from under us when we're introduced to Jose, because we're kind of introduced to him through this footage that he and his editor are working on. And I was still trying to figure out if they were showing this stuff to us backwards or forwards, because it feels like the actress is moving in a forwards way, but then the way that she kind of moves back, it's, it's black and white footage of this, or sepia and white footage of this woman uh, this vampiress who eventually, whether she's coming out of the coffin or going back into the coffin, she ends up in a coffin and the coffin is supposed to catch on fire and that's the end of the movie. There's more to it, but our filmmaker's voice, Jose's voice comes in and is like, no, this is where we're going to end this thing. You know, we're done with this picture now. And there's all this back and forth between he and his editor, which ironically, the editor is uh, played by uh, a guy who kept telling uh, Zulueta to, to cut down all of this stuff when he was kind of advising him on it. So there's because he liked long takes. <laughs> yeah, he really liked long takes and it worked on uh, f- films where where there were many long takes and Zulueta is all about the quick cuts. I mean, these movies that Pedro is, is shooting quote unquote, they are like single frame type of things. And it is all this, you know, all about the art of montage. So it's almost torturous for this guy to be having to edit this, uh, this quick film that we have going on here. 
Yeah, I, I would say it's he. I, it seemed like they're showing it backwards and forwards. I think they're kind of scanning and playing back the film. Because another important part about this movie is just how specifically about celluloid this entire movie is. And of course, it's pre-digital anyway. But I think watching it from where we are now, you realize just how different a world it was. So this is its light. I think this opening scene you're talking about is one of the lightest moments of the whole movie. It's kind of uh, jocular almost and jokey to an extent, uh, almost like modern romance. But I think they're setting him up as like a imitation genre line. You know, he's making this kind of period piece vampire movie. Uh, but unlike someone like genre line, who that probably satisfies our director is kind of already over it and wants to end the film in a very cliche way. Oh, just have her look right at camera and we'll cut to black. You know, just who cares? Let's get over with. So it almost sets up the tone that you, you're starting a movie with this director who makes commercial movies, who is being drained because there's obviously a lot of uh, vampiric, you know, that we'll be going through throughout this vampiric connections. But it seems even from the start, they're saying he's already being drained of life doing being as a director of these kind of, you know, mainstream uh, monster movies. And so it's, it's a great way to kind of set him up and then take this kind of mainstream director and then bring him into the weird world that we enter. And to see him driving home that night and he's got this opera music going on so he's a very cultured person you know he's listening to beethoven and he's driving past the marquees of all these cinema palaces and that of course i'm sure that you felt that same kind of thrill that i did where you're just like "Ooh, what was showing in madrid in 1978 when this was being shot you know oh look at that look at that <laughs> Phantasm, 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 yeah, and COVID. <laughs> I was surprised. Well, I also felt like that music. Yes, I definitely think it was meant to make him look cultured, but it also seemed so opulent that it was also saying, "Look how important movies are." Still, like there's a movie theater and this big music's playing, and it, it made me excited about movies, which isn't hard to do. But it, I feel like that's a big part of this movie is really like deifying cinema. To your point, he is definitely above working on this genre film. But even when we get back to his apartment, it looks like he is – I don't know if, if he has finished this Wolfman film or if the Wolfman film is what he was working on, even though we saw a vampire. Because there's a poster for a Wolfman film in his uh, apartment. I think it is his previous one, and I think this will be his new one, the, the vampire thing. That's right. What I'm, What's happening to me right now is I'm getting confused by the timeline because – in one part later on, he says, my next one is going to be called The Wolfman. And that was much earlier than the scene that we're seeing now. So, see, I, I, the Arabato fooled me right there. Yeah, it really I, I can't speak to volumes about how much the second viewing really clarified and made you kind of just see how where, how it all unfolded. The first time you're so in the moment, it actually is pretty confusing because it's a, a shifting timeline. Well, I had to go back a few times and actually figure out where those breaks were and how we got pulled from one timeline to another. Because I don't want to say that they're seamless, but some of them is just like, oh, okay, this is the moment where we shift from past to present. And I was very surprised. There's one of those that we'll talk about in a few minutes here. At this point, when he goes back to his apartment, he is uh, – now, this is interesting, too, because he's being told he's, – he's given the package from Pedro, and uh, he is told that Anna, his uh, main squeeze, is still in the apartment. She's come back, and so you know as soon as he hears that, there's tension. He doesn't want her to be there, and then on the elevator ride up – elevators are definitely important to this movie – on the elevator ride up – he starts practicing what he's going to say to her, and he just starts, you know, saying it more and more forcefully. He's basically he's directing himself, which I always appreciate. And then when he gets up there, 
she's dead out, uh, asleep, passed out in a drug stupor, whatever it is. And he can't, he doesn't have that moment of catharsis. He can't go in there and yell at her because she's just completely zonked. It's a great setup in that sense. And also, you know, it opens up this idea of drugs. Obviously, beforehand, they whatever happened between them, you get the feeling they maybe haven't been together for a little while. So it's definitely it seems like it's more of an X, but you're not really sure at the start and it gets muddled as it kind of goes. But it, drugs play such a big role in this film uh, and kind of as a comparison to cinema that it, it blurs the line between, you know, what the film's actually about so many times. That so, so to introduce a character like her as already unconscious and his understanding of that is speaks volumes about him also being kind of in the same place or ha- having been. I think it's all, largely seems like he's been trying to be clean at the entry point of this movie. And that's why he wants her out of the life, you know, to just sweep her away because it's easier than, you know, facing it. It's easier to kick drugs yourself than to have somebody around who's also a user and trying to kick it together. Even though, ironically, you know, a couple scenes later, when because it, it's all out of order, we see the first time he actually got her to try it. And you realize, oh, what a son of a bitch, because, you know, he's actually the one who kind of uh, took her into that world. Yeah, we do see him in this, we'll call it the present timeline, where he at one point goes into the bathroom and it looks like he's ready to pop some pills. But he has this big scene of like, no, no, I shan't do this. And he's still kind of out of it he manages to leave the bathtub on uh and forgets about it has to come back in and then rather than taking off his clothes he just goes into the bathtub fully dressed (laughs) yeah yeah it's great like only in movies and then he manages to have a flash of pedro which is a, a nice effect of because we get pedro's voice coming from the other room that we don't know it because it's just layered on the soundtrack and it isn't until we actually see jose go in and turn off the tape player somehow the tape player like i think he started it but it took a while for jose's or pedro's voice to actually start so it's our introduction to now pedro's voice on this tape in the present and then he helps narrate pretty much the entire rest of the film and the way that that narration plays with real world events is very interesting very well done the way that this kind of is a a a way to guide us and a way to counterpoint things that are happening on screen at the same time the scene you're talking about when he's in the in the bath and has the flash picture it also gives you a little bit of of a horror hook which i think is really important to how this movie works to really pull you in like we keep saying about mystery but it has just enough moments of horror without ever really being a horror film per se even though it's got shades you you one could it certainly call it that you could almost think that the moment he sees that flash of pedro could match up to pedro's timeline as the exact moment pedro was no more, which we'll get to as we go. But for all we know, those two things could be, could have been happening right at the same moment, which is kind of cool because you could, you know you you could re-edit this movie and probably uh, you know make it wouldn't be as interesting, but you could get the timeline straight. As you say, re-edit the movie to make it uh, the timeline straight. I'm thinking of heroin. I'm thinking of snorting heroin, and I'm thinking of like oh yeah, like the people try to re-edit Pulp Fiction into a linear story, <laughs> which just completely robs the film of everything. Oh, yeah. And I think this is the same. I think a lot of what makes it so unique is like kind of you're I think you're more a lot of it is about viewership. So I think you're more of an active viewer trying to work it out, you know, and and I think that's forcing you to do more of the legwork and just getting more invested. 
And soon we get into this first flashback where we go back and we see the meeting of Pedro and Juan, and we're introduced to that through Marta. Uh, Marta, when I saw the actress that played Marta, she was so familiar to me. As soon as I saw her, I was just like, wow, she looks like such a Pedro Almodovar type actress. I like how a lot of the people played characters with their same names, which always makes it easy. So uh, Marta's played by Marta Fernandez Muro. I think this was her first role. I think she just pretty much told the director, I wanted to be an actress. And he's like, okay, come on along. And I thought she did a fantastic job. Her overexpressiveness actually plays very well for this character. Yeah. And in opposition to uh, the director character, you know, Jose, who's very, you know, minimal and restrained and kind of reasonably serious the whole way she brings a lot of life to it. And, you know, and she's familiar because all these actors actually end up in a bunch of Almodovar movies. So it's very possible that we did see her in many films without knowing who she was beforehand. And yeah, this was um, pretty early in a lot of these folks' careers because this is even before uh, Omadovar had, uh, you know, really cachet. And we'll we'll actually hear from Omadovar later in the episode or <laughs> <laughs> in the film, I should say. And I like now that we almost switch. We're we're running Pedro's voiceover to describe this first meeting and what had happened with her. Not necessarily giving voiceover, but she's giving all this exposition and telling us about. Pedro through her eyes and painting him as this building that mystery, painting him as this very mysterious figure. And just some of the stuff that she talks about with him is very interesting. You know, talking about how, well, he's, he's lived on this world for 27 years, but he's really only 12. He doesn't fuck. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs, all this. Just And then our introduction to him out in the forest, and we can kind of see him off in the distance. Like, I could barely see him at first. And then finally, when I recognize where he is, and he's out there, it's a very supposed to be a very nice summer day, and he's completely bundled up in a coat, and Jose's just like, what is going on? How can he be out there? It's sweltering, (laughs) and he's wearing this coat. And there's mentions throughout the rest of the film about him always being cold. And um, I think that's also one of our first kind of, not the first, obviously, but one of our uh, other vampiric things that goes through this is that he is cold and eventually he will become very, very pale as we go through this. Yeah, and and he's portrayed as, you know, almost an idiot child, always clinging to like a teddy bear and just acting you know, acting like uh, spontaneously and odd and, uh, and, and dancing and and like crying to himself. And it's and it's a very unusual introduction to a character like and it but definitely gets you interested because you realize he isn't that age. And as it unfolds, you know, as these next sequences unfolding, you realize he isn't as one dimensional as this this projection that he's giving you. That's when it really, I think, becomes fascinating when you realize how to act his age. There's only one way he can do that, and that's through taking some sort of drugs to suddenly appear to be adult and talk like adults in the adult world, which is it was totally fascinating how they how they pulled that. And this whole idea of time passing differently is interesting mm. as well and almost kind of speaks to that immortal undead thing as well, because when we we are going to see very shortly moments where the world is passing at one speed to other people uh you know to one person versus other people and i would imagine that it is one way to pedro and it is one way to other people that live in that world and him saying you know 
I don't need to sleep and I only uh, I can only sleep when I take drugs because it slows me down because otherwise it feels like he is a hummingbird. He has a different rhythm. He keeps talking about rhythm, and uh, it, it seems to be like he re- it represents childlike wonder that is so hard to hold on to as you age. But it's incredible, and it's and and they as they bring out objects later, and we'll get to with the raptures and this idea of getting lost in something, something um, that from childhood. He somehow maintained this even as an adult. Whereas I think that's the hook for Jose to become interested in in Pedro because he sees something that maybe he's now is being drained from him. Like I said, with the kind of movies he's making and he's lost the thing that makes you fall in love with something in the first place. At first you think that Pedro is just some weirdo. Like you think at first I was reminded of when Woody Allen and Diane Keaton go back home to her house and they meet uh, Christopher Walken, (laughs) Diane Keaton's brother. I tell you this because as an artist, I think you'll understand Sometimes when I'm driving on the road at night, I see two headlights coming toward me. Fast, I have this sudden impulse to turn the wheel quickly, head on into the oncoming car. I can anticipate the explosion, the sound of shattering glass, the flames rising out of the flowing gasoline. Right. Well, I have to... I have to go now, Dwayne, because I, I'm due back on the planet Earth. So I'm like, okay, this this dude is just this weirdo, and he's going to, you know, cause trouble for Jose and Marta, and, you know, he's this eccentric uh, man-child kind of thing, especially because the way that we're shown him hanging out that it's uh marta her aunt aunt carmen and jose and they're watching this movie on tv and i love how uh aunt carmen is talking about how the movie used to be in color but now it's in black and white and the tv used to be in color but then she scraped all the color off of it which was interesting (laughs) yeah that's great and how the and she's also arguing about voices being dubbed or not dubbed She's a an avid movie watcher. She says she's seen every single movie, but she has no clue about them whatsoever. Or about his movies. She's never. I've seen every movie, but I've never seen yours. <laughs> you know, she seems to represent what um, filmmakers think the the general audience of movie going is. Like she is that passive viewer, the person who just watches whatever is in front of them and eats it up and doesn't think much critically. You know, it is so she like kind of is the receiver of whatever these other two film makers in the story would make and you realize how kind of pointless it is because it could be anything and i think she would be happy but yeah it's, it's a pretty amusing scene and when she starts asking him if alan ladd's going to be in his film and he's just like no yeah. <laughs> yeah i've seen a lot of movies but i haven't seen yours yet and he's like well i haven't haven't even made it so yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great thing. Yeah, well, it's super creepy. Yeah, they're watching the movie, and in the reflection of the TV, you start to notice that Pedro's standing behind them, like in the corner of the room, just like totally eerily uh, watching over them. Her aunt passes this plate around and passes it over to Jose, and he gives it back to Pedro, and he's just standing there, like eating this, staring out at the world. And Pedro has this amazing look. Like I said, he's in that that big bulky coat and his hair is kind of it's almost like an edward scissorhands hairdo kind of thing and like i said he's very pale and he has this intensity to his performance throughout so much of this movie and he's just there like staring into the world <laughs> he looks like a young nick cave to me like in that like it did 
Edward Scissorhand hair, but on a younger Nick Cave, it has that vibe. He's very skin, skinny, pale, but you know, very dark, kind of uh, under the eyes, and almost uh, almost like with like mascara kind of look. But yeah, and he's right behind the door actually. At one point, the first time his cousin opens the door, and you realize he was there for quite a while, just in the corner. You no know, one and no one had noticed him. But then, the, but then the weird, you know, has one of the the parts where you really get hooked in this movie. There's some parts where you're like, okay, that's eccentric behavior and these characters meeting. But then something visually will happen. I think this is the tide of Zulueta's style you know, of his own movies and some of the avant-garde films we've seen, if you can track them down, is suddenly he starts watching the film in fast forward. It, it, everyone else is just having a normal moment where they have a cup of tea you know, laid out for them. And suddenly the whole movie speeds up you know, a hundred times uh, for him and it's over you know, in an instant. It feels like being in the presence of Pedro, it almost felt like Pedro was squeezing the doll and it was creating some effect for him. I'm sure it's something else, but it was definitely the proximity to these these two characters together that is starting to alter his perception uh, more towards something um, something unique, which is what he's you know craving. And this is our first moment of the rapture that we have in here. And this is, uh, Pedro says later on, you know, that he's always looking for these objects in order to help create this rapture. And he manages it to, to do it through this doll for Jose, but then also kind of through some other objects of Jose's childhood. Pedro is a big collector of comic books and collector's cards. Uh, I'm not familiar with what they are looking at, but it seems like movie stills that are. And King Solomon's mind was one of them. I know that was a, there was a big excitement about that part. Yeah, yeah, he was very very happy about that, and just that it was. It's almost like a comic book mixed with like a, a sticker book. You know, like you would get those books when you were a kid, or at least I did, where you know it, it wasn't necessarily the the trading cards, but the stickers that came with the trading cards, and you would lay them into these books and be able to kind of create your own thing. And he was very excited about the, the borders around the pictures and everything and pointing it out very sensually to, I was touching everything, which was great. It's a type of person. It's a, it's a strange movie, but I can really relate to this idea of this kind of fetishism towards objects and things from your past and things that you can get lost in. And I think that's a big part of this movie is about getting lost into something. Mostly it's about movies and drugs in the movie, in this film, but it's also about any kind of object that can bring up something for, for you that isn't just, it's a, like a pause. He keeps using the word pause. I'm not sure if it's in this exact context, but it's a pause from your reality into something else something a little more more interesting and a bit closer to you know whatever a spiritual uh you know movement or that they're having the rapture in this case and they're always trying to think i wonder what would move that person what would it take to rapture that person what what would we have to show them you know to get them to kind of hook them and it's 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 really interesting but i i know if i walk into a friend's house and they have you know an incredible blu-ray collection or you know mondo movie posters or some old antiquity from cinema, I will have that same kind of feeling. So I can totally relate to it. I love the line that you just used about what do we have to show these people in order to rapture them? That is such a question that a director would ask, you know, what is going to hook these people? And that is what both Pedro and Jose share is this direction. And it feels like Pedro is looking at Jose almost as a mentor. He's, he respects Jose that he is a director. And Jose gives him a gift later on that Pedro just absolutely loves it so that he can actually 
uh, do uh, one frame animation type stuff. And that is really, you know, he's been counting things off beforehand and there's the pauses in between there, which he's not necessarily sure about either. And now he has this mechanism where he can just set it and it'll, you know, shoot 10 frames every minute instead of however many 10 times uh, 60 by 24. Yeah, I'm not going to do the math on that, but (laughs) he'll do this frame by frame thing rather than, you know, shooting at a normal rate. The other thing before I forget, I wanted to say, I love uh, again, the introduction of Pedro when Jose is in his room and he's trying to get to sleep and we see Pedro kind of perched on. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's one of the best character introductions. Right? <laughs> so good. And when he sneezes and the lights go out. <laughs> yeah. There's things in this movie that can't just be explained away by logic in the same way. I feel like it almost has a twin peaks, the first pilot kind of vibe where it can be very serious, but then a character can enter and do something goofy and strange and still somehow holds together, which, most people totally would not be able to hold those two things together and it just it really works yeah he's he's, it's very eccentric and strange but jose goes with it you know and jose knows i feel like jose's in a place in his life where he's you know looking for change and this this starts to present that opportunity right and no time does jose just like what is this kid's problem he just yeah he's just rolling with it i mean it's that whole thing like you were saying with twin peaks it's like if Dougie Jones were in my office acting the way that he is, I'd probably call an ambulance, but people just go with it. That's the way that it is with this in this world. This is kind of movie like those movies. If you love those kind of movies, Cronenberg, Lynch, you're going to find something in here to sink your teeth. And some people would be maybe repelled by that, the, the kind of surrealist streak that runs through this. Well, and I love love that line, too, where he says to Jose, uh, invite me. I want to talk to you. And I'm just like, oh, that is such a vampire line as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah, I didn't catch that. That's a, that is a good point. Even though he's in his house. I mean, that's the other thing that we we failed to mention is that the reason they're even at this house, which is like this guy's family house that his aunt has is because uh, Jose's thinking about using it for a shoot. So really, it's a location scout. And I guess uh, Marta's his ex-girlfriend, so it or or a girl he's had a fling with at some point. Uh, maybe he was with her at the time, but it doesn't seem like there's anything physical really between them too much. So it's also just even that's tied to the movies, like they're only there because there is a vampire quality to location hunting you know like oh we want your house so you now you have to kind of smoothen out that relationship and create you watch a movie with the aunt and drink her tea and eat her dinner because you're at the end of the day you're going to be asking for something so it's a, there are all these kind of vampiric relationship qualities inherent to all facets of the of filmmaking yeah there's nothing physical it seems like between marta and jose i mean they're sleeping in separate beds presumably we don't see uh, marta again for a while It seems like there's much more of a physical relationship between Jose and Pedro than there is between Jose and Marta. Yeah, it certainly develops, and it it seems to really develop later on when Anna is part of the storyline, when he brings her to meet Pedro later. When that story comes out, we'll get get into a specific scene that reminds me of um, 
the scene in Cronenberg's uh, Crash where the two men, you know, they haven't shown any hints of homosexual overtones at all in Crash. And then suddenly they're in the back of the car having sex and there's a, like a close up of Spader or Coteus's hand on a car seat with cum on it. And it just kind of sticks to the car seat. And it's just one of those great moments where you're like, oh, <laughs> and, and this scene has almost the exact same thing later where the two guys are in bed. Something's kind of implied and you see this like plasticine jelly stuff that he squeals like putty that uh, Pedro is always squeezing. You see it puts it up on the top of the bed and it slowly oozes down and it kind of doubled for that same image to me of, (laughs) oh, these two guys, I think I know what just happened. (laughs) And even when we see them looking at this uh, King Solomon's mine collection, it's just like, okay, this feels like a seduction. You know, this feels like, come on up to my place. We'll look at this. You know, isn't this cool? And here we are hanging out on this bed. And it's just, uh, it, that doesn't happen at this point. Now, this is when I was talking about those moments where we're moving from past to present and it's very seamless. This is one of those moments where I'm just like, wait, what just happened? Because we kind of, there's a really nice dissolve. We see some static on a TV screen and then Anna kind of, kind of comes into the the real world through a dissolve she fades into the scene and that's kind of our proper introduction to anna we've seen her snoozing on a bed before passed out and now we actually get to see her and interact with her and i love the way that this scene is uh shot uh especially the framing because it looks like from so we we are going from a close-up of her from presumably around jose's pov to a reverse shot of her talking to jose and when she's talking to jose in that reverse shot it just looks like she's giving him a blowjob (laughs) at least that's how i saw it i don't know did you see it that way uh, I do now. Okay. All right. <laughs> There'll be no other way to say it. No, I mean, they sexualize. It's funny when her character really comes in from here on, there's a little bit of a Teresa Russell vibe from bad timing that we talked about, not the necessary uh, menacing side, but that kind of free sexual actress character uh, that you really see in our last conversation, you know, a while back talking about bad timing. But, you know, I didn't know this about the Anna character and that actually did blow my mind is this is like one of her very first roles. She's probably 20 years old. I had no idea. She is the mother in all about my mother by Alma Dover, which blows my brains. Like it wasn't until after I started looking them up just before we did this. And I was like, Oh my God, not only was she in a bunch of early Almodovar, but when she was brought back for all about my mother. So the influence of this movie was pretty significant on Almodovar. And a lot of the kind of sites I was reading up on people had written things about this movie really said that this film, you know, that Almodovar is borrowed heavily in his early films from you know this movie and his kind of relationship with uh, Zuluita. So anyway, I, it, it kind of blew me away. So Anna, she kind of really uh, Cecilia is, is the actor, uh, really bursts kind of to life. She brings the playfulness and the kind of ingenuity to the to the screen here, which is a lot of fun. And in these first moments that we're seeing her, she's constantly putting lipstick on her lips and just drawing so much attention to her lips. It's just Mm. uh, it's kind of crazy. And talking about how someone at one point had referred to her as being drab and she never wanted to be drab ever again. And so we have her putting lipstick on in this scene. And then we cut to another flashback and it's her again putting lipstick on (laughs) 
<laughs> while she's in a car and they're kind of repeating this journey now back to Pedro's house or to Aunt Carmen's house and they meet Aunt Carmen on the road and she talks to them for a little bit she's going out and she's just like oh yeah there's no way Pedro doesn't ever leave the house so it's even a bigger shock later on when she when he finally gets the courage to leave the house and the the transformation that happens to him when he moves to the big bad city and then he starts to dress like i don't know uh, a biker gang type of guy <laughs> yeah that feels like it's the the kenneth anger period of the film which is totally kind of because because a lot of these uh, movies that the way zulueta obviously shot a lot of his own experimental stuff seems very influenced by like american avant-garde films so i definitely you see a lot of brackage and people like that but kenneth anger in that period it just seems hilarious like almost less Leather, leather bar, Scorpio Rising stuff. Uh, it almost goes all the way. But th- there's earlier on, it, it is a confusing movie to talk about because we are talking about two different timelines. But the fir- before we really meet Anna and we've seen Anna on that first recording, Pedro even talks about how dull she was and alluding to something that ha- we haven't even seen yet, which is them meeting, which we see later. So it, it does, it, it, it hits that pretty hard that this kind of idea that she is. And I think that's maybe just more of a comment on actors. You know, she actress as an empty vessel, whereas we're directors, we're both filmmakers. We, we are uh, trying to achieve this bigger thing of transcendence of filming things. They're happy to just be filmed. So they can't, feel the rapture in the same way it, it seems to be one of the things they're trying to get across with her character when well, she's so easily raptured he manages mm-hmm. to find an object within a few seconds this betty boop doll that he puts down in front of her sets her down in a chair and she is just out like a light and just staring at this doll in this rapturous state i mean we don't get her pov to see what she's experiencing but we do get uh, Jose and Pedro off to the side and this is that that I love that you describe this as crash because this is that crash moment where they end up the hey we're bored she's raptured let's have sex I don't think that she's enraptured the first time there's also again a vampire vibe where he knows stuff about her that there's no way he could know there's a line where he says oh well, she didn't even pay any attention to that and that's something she had as a child like he knew something and then he brings out Betty Boop because he knows he has to you know, work on it a little. So he puts out this doll and then, but it's also not, she isn't easily raptured in the sense of just like they are with the comics. She had to be on smack first. So she's like kind of blitzed out of her mind on drugs. And then, this, and that only through that was she able to discover that connection to the Betty Boop, which comes out later too, with a great performance. Well, probably one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah, which mixes real life and film so well, especially her there standing in front of the white screen with the projector light on her. So it's like, is she a filmed image? Yes, because we're watching a movie. Is she a real image? Is she what is happening here in the way she almost, quote unquote, leaps off the screen and into his arms is pretty phenomenal. Imitating and she's imitating Betty Boop this the same thing that they kind of had bonded over and then she comes over to him and seduces him and lies on top of him and then she and he's totally into it it's one of the best really one of the great scenes of this movie because of his reactions to her you can tell that whatever was happening behind the scenes and when they're filming this it is just working and he is he is totally connected to her and then she lies on him and she reaches back and takes her little kind of Betty Boop hat off and her hair kind of comes out. And she plays with it a couple times and the spell is over and he's like basically throws her off him. And it's such a surprise because you're expecting, oh, now they're going to go for it because who wouldn't? It's so sexy. And then he's just like, nope, you broke the 
I'm, I'm looking for that other thing that I'm looking for the thing on screen. I'm looking for that, that fantasy that, uh, you, you know, you're, you're still real. And it's, it's really, it's a really kind of a terrific little moment. And by this point in the film, he is so enraptured by the story that Pedro is laying out via this audio cassette and eight millimeter film. It's almost like, get out of my way, lady. I'm too busy watching this and experiencing this. And I love that it is a, Disynchronous uh, experience. We've got the the tape and the film, but whenever he plays them, they always seem to sync up as far as what the story is. So what is happening on the screen, which again is usually very very experimental, but that is happening coincidentally with the audio. And then we're kind of also moving from the actual film footage that we're seeing to what was going on perhaps when Pedro was shooting this or in Pedro's life at the time. So we're kind of being tricked again as far as like, well, this isn't really what he shot, but this is what is happening in his life and describing it that way. So it's a nice way that we're kind of, again, jumping through time and getting our Pedro story, even though now we're pretty much done with Jose and Pedro ever really connecting physically again. Like, this is it. After they have that moment, we constantly have Pedro's voice and Pedro's memories and this story going on. But now it is almost all Jose and the present world. We don't really get that interaction between these two characters anymore, which is an interesting way of uh, having this. It's kind of kind of reminds me of, like, Laura in that way, where it's like, okay, we have... Laura is such an important figure and it's all these flashbacks. We've got Dana Andrews doing the investigation, but we don't really ever get them together until almost the end of the movie. Yeah, that's that's actually a good comparison. Another would be maybe like Lost Highway even because it does feel like they're connected, right? These two guys are uh, extensions of the same thing. And it feels like in Lost Highway, you know, Bill Pullman and Balzer are, are doing the same thing. One's a reimagined youthful version. But in this case, it seems to be saying something about like uh, one represents commercial cinema and the other represents, you know, avant-garde experimental cinema and both like kind of need something from the other to exist. I feel like if you made, if you're Michael Bay, uh, I'm sure he sits around sometimes wishing he could have, you know, made last year a Marion bad or been Bergman. And then, you know, somebody like, you know, a, a, a Kenneth Anger or whatever probably wishes he had the money to make a big move, you know, a big film. So I feel like both these characters represent maybe where the director Zulueta was stuck in between, you know? So you're saying Zulueta and George Lucas, same person? <laughs> it could be. Hey, don't worry. George Lucas is still going to make a bunch of indie art house films. Remember, he said he told us that 20 years ago. I'm still waiting going to retire and you know make a sequel to THX 1138. I'm going to call it THX 1139. It is cool that they obviously leave and I think that maybe is true of some people you meet in your life you only meet them once or twice but the impression is you know deep and kind of scarring and you're forever changed by that experience and I think that's enough and and, and a lot of what you were just describing it sounds so complicated like if somebody was listening to this now and hasn't seen the movie it, it's just going to sound like something that's impossible to follow but really what's interesting is even though a lot of the visuals of the films they shoot are experimental the actual shooting style of this movie is very simple and i think that's be a very smart choice on his part because the structure is complex you know because we are cutting back and forth but what you're actually watching on an image site is very you know is very realist for the most part besides these little flourishes so it just sounds so much more complicated than it is because there is a lot going on time-wise i don't know if you've ever read theodore rosak's uh, flicker 
but this whole idea of images hidden with images, things hidden in the frame kind of thing. As Pedro starts to, he pretty much starts to disintegrate, to, to, to uh, get worse and worse. And it's for him, the way he described it is basically there are vampires out there that are draining him of his life energy. Are those vampires actually drugs? Yeah, I probably think so. He looks so strung out as we go along, but he has, quote-unquote, evidence of these vampires affecting him because on his movies, which he obsessively shoots and then watches, he starts to see these blips, these flashes of red. The first time he sees it, it is only just a, a frame amongst 24 per second, right? The next roll he shoots, it's longer, and then longer, and then longer, and then he starts to try to figure out what these flashes are, and they seem to happen only when he's sleeping. So he has this woman, Gloria, come in, and she's supposed to watch him while he sleeps. Now, Gloria is an interesting character because when Gloria came in, She's a very uh, attractive lady, but she was speaking with a man's voice. And I'm just like, is this a drag queen? I don't really understand what's happening here. And it wasn't until I watched the documentary, we'll talk about it in the second half of the show, where they explain, oh, that was on Moldovar dubbing her voice. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which somehow makes, makes it make more sense, which really it doesn't. It's like, why, who let him do that? It's funny because tonally it's quite a – it's not that weird in that way. Like usually it, I feel like this film doesn't do think campy things for the most part uh, to pull you – unlike Almodovar. But that's one of those moments where it really uh, – yeah, it really kind of pushes that. What the hell is going on right now? Because I'm looking at her and I'm, I'm like – you know, no, her makeup isn't on too thick. Uh, you know, just like trying to, to figure this out. I'm like, did he hire a TS prostitute to come in and, and watch him sleep or something? I wasn't really sure what was going on because then, and then later on, they go out and they're basically cruising together. And that's a, that scene, that cruising scene is just terrific. The way that that plays out. It's so popular. Like, and the other thing that I you don't pick up on watching a movie just first time, you know, researching and you realize like uh, Franco had such a tight kind of stranglehold over censorship in Spain that and he dies in 75. So it's like just a couple years later when they're making this movie that this film feels a bit like a watershed where it's like, OK, all the pop sensibility that we weren't allowed to display, uh, so, you know, some of this kind of punk attitude, sex, drugs, implications of violence. It's like it feels like he can just do it all. All the stuff he had they'd been holding back and weren't allowed to do. So there's a lot of stuff that because it doesn't feel like a political film. That's why I always love films that probably are deeply influenced by the politics of the time, but don't talk about it. I much prefer that. You know, I don't want to hear Franco mentioned and and regimes and but but you can once you read about it, you're like, oh, okay. So that's probably why this film, you know, is such a product of this this moment. I think those scenes really uh, sum that up. They're just they're so fun and kind of alive and almost goofy with uh, the feeling like American cinema. Yeah, I'm going to be saying this a lot in a couple months when we do like a whole month of Czech Timber films where. All of those movies being made underneath that communist regime. I mean, even last week when we did a show on uh, on the Silver Globe, and it's just like, yeah, this movie was being made when communism still had a stranglehold over Poland. In this case, it is when Franco's ghost is pretty much still in charge of Spain, but just kind of starting to fade. So just that those moments of 
subverting the system and saying something without outright saying it is those are always my favorite moments. You know, that it's like, how can you make great art during times of oppression? And these are fantastic examples of this. And even though we're not necessarily seeing a whole lot of stuff, like during this cruising scene, we get, are seeing a whole lot of stuff. I love the, this whole thing. And this, it almost reminds me of the opening seduction scene of the hunger, because at this point, we are with Gloria and Pedro, and they are basically vampires by this moment. Yeah, it seems like that you can't tell if they're, re, you know, what if they're really doing it, but they're at least trying it. Almost another movie that has a lot of similarities to is uh, before is the addiction, you know, both with the drug use, but that's that's so much more Catholic. You know, Nicholas St. John's. It still has. I love that film, but it still has. It's still very much connected to story and i don't think this film's bound by story this film's definitely operating on something more than just that so there's this feeling that they're doing kinky sexual things to people and then just biting them and trying to be whether they're real vampires it's beyond me you know i can't tell but definitely something weird's happening sexually and and some of the violent moments are none of them are scary though they're all kind of absurd Right, exactly. Yeah, seeing the guy run out with his, uh, you know, in his underwear and all that. And again, it's just to your point of earlier, it reminded me, um, as they're in that elevator ride, it's so reminded me of like a Kenneth Anger kind of thing, especially the guy's got the, you know, the biker cap. Yeah, it's definitely, this is such a great film for cinephiles because I do think you discover all sorts of layers of things you've learned about through, you know, through the years. It's, it, it's really fun in that way. And, and, you know, the more you learn about, uh, Zilueta, the more you realize it's just the guy who lived and breathed. Cinema was the most important thing to him, more important than life, you know, which I always find people like that, uh, you know, I, I can understand that. And that this whole scene, this seduction scene I'm talking about takes place. Uh, over the period of a song and the way that the song plays against that too. I love too, like we're listening to the song, the song's kind of doing a breakdown. The camera moves at one point away from the action, but focuses more on uh, the wheels of this elevator. So talking, bringing us back to the earlier conversation about an elevator and just that, uh, you know, just watching that and then stuff starts to happen and the camera moves back and it's like, okay, now I'm going to catch back up with the action again. Yeah, yeah, and you're you're getting to see some bigger toys being used, whether it's like dollies or you know tracking shots and things that you can tell this is a director who hasn't gotten the chance to play with this kind of stuff because you know both and when I say director, I mean both Zulueta and, Pe- and Pedro. You know, Pedro has been making these first person little uh, you know uh, camera oddities, and and suddenly everything that we're watching has a, a bigger feel. Going back to the music, and the music in this movie is fantastic. There's a lot of this atmospheric low rumbling type music but the stuff that really sticks with me are those moments where we're talking about how you know a lot of this is tying back into childhood there's this almost like a circusy type of music where there's this really creepy laughter happening and these squeaks from um i also associated with dog toys but from like little baby dolls and these kind of things and this theme plays quite a few times in the movie and it is just so creepy and so effective yeah like a music box that's why i kept thinking like a kid but you never it's great because they never show you the place where that would be coming from and that's great so it you know by keeping it uh as a non-diegetic thing we don't know where it, we don't really know if it's in the narrative or outside the narrative you know and that really that really helps to make it uneasy for the character it's even used in the climax which is amazing you know well speaking of the climax let's talk about this because this is uh, man just amazing so we we're getting this mystery and it is building and building and building 
building, this whole thing of the red frames and what is happening to Pedro when he is sleeping and those those few moments where he can sleep, but he does fall asleep very easily, which is nice. I'm glad we didn't spend, you know, an hour waiting for him to fall asleep. As these frames are getting longer and longer, more and more red frames on the this film, he is convinced that at some point uh, he only has, I think, two reels left and that he's going to be gone and he shoots the one and then he is about to shoot the other when he sends this package off to Jose so now Jose has no idea what has happened to Pedro and we are left with him to then see the rest of the mystery and I love too that we can't just see what happens he can't just go to Pedro's apartment and like put on the film and watch it. We now have to wait four days for the film to be processed. (laughs) That was a great great moment that a lot, even though I'm a big proponent of film, that's one of those great moments where, you know, somebody's going, yeah, forget that. (laughs) You go into a store and he's like, well, can we do a fast time for, okay, two days. And you're like, all right. Uh, Yeah. It's very different. One, there's one thing I guess we, we left out, which, which adds to, you know, just slightly the horror element, which is that Marta, uh, you know, went over to his apartment at one point to watch him after and he explains the whole Pedro explains the whole story to her and says you know this is happening and I don't I need somebody to watch me I'm concerned and she's watching him sleep and we hear the camera turn on and then or, or is he not there I can't remember if he, if he no, no, she's watching him that's right and then the him. camera just rotates around with no one operating it and points at her and she turns to look at it and is disappears. So it's important because that moment is the only reason we would really believe what we're about to see for the finale. We, because that's where, because, because of course, Pedro, when he wakes up, he doesn't know what happened to her because she's just not there. So, you know, one could think she got tired and left, but of course, if he puts on the film, he can kind of see her trapped essence or, or freed, depending on how you look at, you know, what they're talking about with these red friends. I mean, the red frames are, are, this is where these kind of movies are great because they don't won't give you that specific thing that you want that clear walk away. You know, uh, what? Uh, how can film be a vampire per se? But I kept thinking about, you know, remember for one, uh, you know, like Tarantino and his, you know, the theater, of the new Beverly, this big commitment to celluloid and this idea of persistence of vision, right? That we have these, these frames, but then we also have these little bits of, uh, you know, black frame uh, or light where we're, there's just little parts where, we're not seeing anything, but we don't notice them. So I kept thinking that maybe that this red frame started there. It starts in one of those gaps, you know, that we've never noticed because, but it's still a gap in the celluloid and slowly, you know, is draining us. That's why it's turning red. It's trying you know, turning uh, blood red to take us, but it, it definitely feels like the director is trying to make, say something about these ideas of how we watch movies and understand them. And, and, you know, it's amazing that an art form of a hundred years and no one's ever really been able to explain persistence of vision. <laughs> I mean, it shows how funny, you know, we have these ideas, but you look at it and go, that's pretty strange that it works, uh, that we don't notice these, uh, extra frames. So I, I love it. I love the choice of using, you know, us turning red and slowly being like, uh, yeah, he, he realized he counts it up and he's like, I've only got, you know, enough film for two dreams, two doses, two raptures, you know? He knows the equation now. Uh, so when we see what happens to Marta and she disappears, we realize, oh, there really is a supernatural element, at least on the surface of this movie, which, you know, is a little is a little disturbing at that point in, this, in the story. So when, yeah, like you say, when he's at the end and he's telling uh, Jose to come look for him, because if, if all goes to plan, he will have raptured 
the ultimate the ultimate rapture or whatever we think the ending means we get that great mirror image of we've seen pedro go into the shop and give the the film and pick it up and you know leave and everything pick up his little tab and that and that we see jose do the exact same thing wearing the same sunglasses the same coat even just reenacting that that moment and that uh same kind of passion now that jose had or that pedro had and then when he goes back to the apartment and puts on the film and that it is all red until he finds that one frame of pedro on there and the way he's going back and forth and back and forth till he can finally find it and when he finds it and is looking at uh pedro's face and then when he starts to move that actually made me jump a little bit. It's I was eerie. Really it's, happy. Yeah, it's really eerie, but it's also brilliantly crafted with the music, and and it it's that like keep looking, keep digging. The the obsession of the filmmaker to keep looking at every frame is important, and then you find one frame, and then that frame stops being a single frame, even though its hand is in front of the projector, and it's impossibly the image continues to move despite him trying to block the projector's light and you realize it's now been freed of it. The film and the projection has been like freed of its mortal coil in this moment. And he starts seeing Pedro's face moving and signal looking happy too, which is interesting. We're looking, I'd say not necessarily happy, but like free or relieved from the kind of person he was. And then neuroses all seem to be gone. And he just like kind of signals over with a slight head nod that Jose should go lie on the bed kind of keeps giving him this little head nod. And you're like, Oh, this is eerie. This is just, it's just, there's something really just off, but also beautiful about how the sequence is put together. And, and then Jose of course listens to him and actually, you know, uh, copies, and and follows him basically down the rabbit hole. He listens to to Pedro, but at the same time, then the Pedro face morphs into his face, yeah. and his face is basically telling him, "No, don't do it." So it's just like, "Whoa!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so simple. Art versus I commerce. Mean, is... I'm, I'm sure there's something there. Art versus commerce. <laughs> And this is all taking place without any sort of dialogue, all just these facial expressions and music and cutting back and forth between what's happening on this poster board that they're showing it on and what's happening on Jose's face. And we've got that creepy ass music going on the whole time. It's just like, is he going to do it? Is he not going to do it? And were you secretly there like wishing and saying like, get into bed. I want to see what happens. Oh yeah. I mean, this is like exactly because it's not us. It's, it's, it is, it's a, it's like all great kind of horror and sci-fi moments where it's like, if somebody told you they had, you know, time travel machine, would you really go into it? Like you want to, cause you want to know, but you are, you're, you're never coming back from that, you know, that journey to an extent. So, oh, I thought that's it's a great moment to really push into. And then it kind of gets the final moments become like what you would expect to be happening here. The same thing's happening to Jose because he's, you know, finally ready for this transcendent. I think he's given himself enough to cinema at this point. And then it's the very almost political, overtly political moment because he's wearing a blindfold. And you keep hearing the film kind of cranking through and then there's like a gunshot fire and it literally cuts to black. So it literally feels like, you know, a firing squad, which is kind of surprising and and unnerving. And then it all of a sudden you're out. It it ends. So it's it, the spell is kind of um, kind of ended and ends in that very harsh moment. I can only imagine sitting in the movie theater watching that moment. And when it when the black comes up, just like, 
what did I just see? Oh, yeah, especially at that time, I think, uh, where Spain didn't have an Almodovar yet. You know, they didn't have the kind of directors who were going to open their cinema up, which all, this is kind of one of the starting points for what becomes Alex D'Iglesia. You know, all these really interesting, uh, you know, kind of out there, I think, uh, visionaries. But this movie was, I think, yeah, hitting at a time when it makes sense. It played for it played for one week. And then, uh, and then this is the absolute definition of a cult movie. I mean, and, and in our case, in America, we're still waiting to discover it. It's cult. But in Spain, you know, it, you know, played for one week, got just comp- didn't even get into Cannes, got rejected from that, then got kind of disappeared. And it took, I, I, I don't know if it was a year, it took a while before some one theater kind of rediscovered and played it every kind of like a Razorhead played it or El Topo played it every night for um, at least a year. And it's slowly built all these younger filmmakers who are, you know, just probably going to film school suddenly, you know, receiving this movie, like, holy shit, what is this punk object that we've got here? You know? And, and that's, and that's really awesome because when I saw this movie, I didn't know any of this history, didn't know anything about it. I just thought, Oh, this really crazy, odd Lynchian, you know, strange movie. And then when you start to see, uh, the roots and origins and the story behind it, you realize, wow, really in a, in a sense, it's quite an important, uh, film. It's fairly commercial, commercially viable. I mean, I, it's even though we talk about the experimental nature of it, I mean, I would feel comfortable recommending this to people who are more into commercial horror films, more into you know going to see Don't Breathe, these kind of things. Yeah, I think if somebody could get through Videodrome, they could get through this for sure. But then that it has that experimental nature to it, it just really kind of blends those things so seamlessly. And a lot of it's about the topic too. Like this is a topic. The topic is experimental film more than the films an experiment film it feels like obviously this director really you know crafted a real narrative you know feature film even though his background was only making you know short uh you know some of his shorts are just like filming a screen <laughs> of a frankenstein <laughs> or frankstein um so so it is a big leap and i think he does a great job with the performances and he obviously had a very intuitive uh uh, you know, ability to put a film together, I think. And in the same way that Lynch does, I, I feel like trying to be Lynchian is the quickest uh, route to failure, you know, but actually having that inside you poetically and being able to create images that can take you somewhere uncomfortable or surprising fluidly is, is one of the hardest things to do in movies. And I feel like Zulueta is doing that all throughout this movie. All right, let's take a break and we'll be back right after we play these brief messages. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, 
tracking down the interview subjects and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. They're a movie podcast where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like two professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drugged up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 miles for Terrence. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? All right, we are back, and we are talking about Arbato. So, fortunately, there were two documentaries that we were able to watch. Surprisingly, I mean, this movie that so many people haven't heard of, but here are these two documentaries. One is specifically about Arbato itself, which is called Arbatos, and then there's a doc uh, about the filmmaker Ivan Zulueta, and that documentary is called Ivan Z. So, we're kind of seeing. Where Ivan was uh, later on in his life, it's interesting that Arabatos, the documentary, I'm trying to remember exactly when that was made, but it feels like it must have been made after he had passed because he's no longer with us. But he's definitely not in the documentary, so even if he was around, he's not in the doc. Whereas the other one, of course, he is in the doc. And... um very, very different portraits, one speaking specifically about the film, one specifically about the man, but there is some great crossover between the two. So I'm curious what you thought of these two documentaries. For me, they're great because neither of them are on the disc that I have. So if somebody gets the German, you won't be able to see that. Uh, I think Arbatos, you know, it really filled out this. I think it's 97 or something like that. That one was made. Uh, it really filled out the picture of what was going on. That basically, there's this guy who was kind of a hotshot experimental avant-garde short filmmaker, and he was very good at 
exciting the people around him about cinema and that's what he lived and breathed and at some point somebody decided to take you know a risk on uh, helping him fund using you know short ends and making bigger uh, a bigger production and they put together uh, the idea for this movie and you know it, i guess he had a three hour cut originally that the producer keeps saying was actually great and it wasn't because of the film that they cut it but just purely you know, for commerciality, uh, which always ends up being pointless when the movie gets shelved after a, a week. Anyway, it's a portrait of a guy who's, you know, passion and tune created this incredible uh, set experience for everyone where the professional filmmakers uh, who worked on this movie were utterly confounded on what the hell was going on. So the professional, you know, whether it's the cameraman and the, uh, you know, anyone involved in the actual crewing of the film, including script girl really did thought it was the strangest thing they'd ever been on set. And they had no idea what the actual story was. They really just didn't know. And they thought the, you know, the director and the actors were the strangest people ever. And then you have the, the, you know, the actor experiences and the experience that the director is setting the tone for what's going on screen. And he's doing a great job with that side of things. Uh, but Obviously, you know, the subject matter of the heroin use slipped in and they kind of dance around it in Arabatos. It's very clear that Ivan Zulueta became a victim of heroin, you know, through the through this film and he kind of fully never really fully recovered. But it's also very much implied in this documentary that so did the rest of the cast and they don't really ever completely say exactly how bad it all was but the vibe i got from the documentary there's a lot of kind of he knows what i'm talking about said <laughs> which we don't as an audience there were a lot of moments where somebody would say that and i got the vibe that the actors were this was a movie which crossed lines while they were making it definitely feels like there were a lot of uh, uh victims yeah. <laughs> after this but then a lot of people went on to fantastic things all I the mean, actors went on to almodovar careers all of them in his documentary, he doesn't seem to have a problem talking about it in the way that he he actually kind of makes some jokes about how he's on methadone now. And he was just like, OK, you can cut in the scene from um, all that jazz right here, because this is what I'm you know, I wanted to be cool, like, you know, Roy Scheider. kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that is great. man. You know, this this documentary on Ivan Z is uh, could also be called the Great Gardens of Ivan Z because it really has that vibe that he like has moved home. He's a 60 year old man who at one point was, you know, this hot, hot artist uh, and is now living, you know, with his mother in the family home and is pretty much a shut in. He even talks about because, he, you know, he had a very successful career as a poster artist as well uh, and, you know, designed a lot of Almodovar's early posters. But now you get this vibe that probably he's also gone through uh, his he's also gotten clean, which sounds like he, he kind of talks about how it took like just 10 years of his life were gone for that. Just that part of my life trying to make that choice. There's 10 years and you just wake up 10 years later, which kind of reminds me of how time is treated in the movie, how you could just be enraptured into something and then you blink and realize the movie's over. Uh, I feel like there's a lot. Of, I mean, I feel like there's so much personal uh, material threaded through this movie that it really makes it a rich kind of experience seeing these things as well. But it, it's a sad portrait of, of a guy who it, it's nice that he's able to you know openly discuss the problems he's had and the missed opportunities and moments. But still, even now, he talks about how the movie can still affect him. He's almost like Pedro crying. You know, Pedro is obviously at the start of the movie crying at the embarrassment of the images he's creating in a weird way. He's like emotionally affected by them, but also in a sense of, um, you know, embarrassment. And I feel like there's something, some kind of direct connection to Zulueta there. 
those posters are just amazing. And it seems like I, I understand that he probably did a lot of those on commission or, you know, made them professionally. But there's a moment where he's talking about when he was a kid, he would draw posters for movies. That was kind of like his outlet, his creative outlet, being fascinated by film so much that he would draw pictures related to the movies. This really shows how cinema had affected this guy. And I love that in the other documentary in Arabatos, there's this constant thing about how Zulueta doesn't read. He doesn't read books. He he just does movies. You know, that's the only thing that he takes in. And then it seems like that's what he puts out as well. It is all about like the comic books. You know, we have a scene kind of reminded me of Crumb a little bit with one of Crumb's brothers where he's fascinated by like the Bugs Bunny comics and stuff. And in this, he's talking, he's got these two kind of photo novels of these Disney Bambi or something. And just like, oh, look at this. This is a blow up of this frame. You know, this is the same movie, but this is a little bit different. And just comparing these things because he just is all about collecting things regarding the cinema. And, and I mean, he's enraptured, you know, and I, I really think that uh, I did pull that Orson Welles quote. I mean, there's a lot of good quotes about it, but where Welles said living for filming rather than filming for living, you know, which is what these people i mean look you know you spend every week of your life uh putting together this podcast right you spend so much of your time i feel like there's a lot of similarities to the types of people that this movie's about as well as the types of people a lot of cinephiles are they're willing to give their lifeblood energy to this thing not for riches and reward the reward is the cell the cinema the the this other thing that's bigger than us and feels special to be a part of and i, I think it's it's so endlessly interesting, and 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 the result sometimes can be this kind of portrait of a of a man, which is Ivan Z, kind of clunking around his, his this kind of almost mansion like <laughs> building. It's a beautiful house that he even he also talks about towards the end is probably going to have to give up, which is you know the kind of sad afterthought. But I don't think he lived much longer than when this documentary. It, it got the feeling like he might have only been a year or so later when he passed after this film was made about him. From what I understand, that was done in 2004, and he ended up passing in 2009. It was like uh, New Year's, uh, it was December 30th, 2009, and it's uh, interesting to see, you know, the place where he was born was the place that he died, same exact city, and it seems like when he, he even gives this whole speech about my house and like what does that mean does that mean that this is the house where i live is this the house that i want to live in is this the house of my parents and it gets really kind of like caught up in this whole idea of what does my house mean there are some moments in that ivan z documentary where i'm just like i could really do without this like him going out and shooting shooting this wall of, of vines and stuff i'm just like Okay, I wish there was a better fast forward functionality on uh, you know VLC player right now. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one thing to watch uh, to see the results of somebody's filming, but to watch them doing it, yeah, it's a little dry. But I think they're I think they are well worth tracking down. If somebody's gotten this far and they've you know watched the film and listened to this podcast, I do think tracking down those two things will enrich you know the overall kind of vision of what that film meant. Especially, I, I, it was a little disappointing that Almodovar is not in the. Uh, Arbato's documentary that felt like a no-brainer uh, you know I'd love to see a I, I saw one little excerpt online of him commenting about this movie and its influence on him but other than that I think it would be cool if somebody ever put this out you know stateside to try to really push for a, a full Almodovar 
um, you know, reading, I think. Well, in that Arabatos uh, documentary, he does not come off very well. It almost seems like, oh, yeah, he was hanging around and he would come in and just basically be a nuisance on the set. And he pretty much stole all of Yvonne's ideas. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people said it. But it's, it, yeah, it's not where you lift it from. <laughs> it's where you take it to, I guess, because Almodovar did pretty well with that, uh, the sensibility. And clearly they were friends for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and maybe, I think, till the end, because, uh, you know, Yvonne obviously designed and designed his posters and uh you know a lot of things i read they were still he was still checking in i think i think he was just they're both shared that real passion uh for everything cinema related which you know really comes across in this well there was one more documentary that i was unable to get my hands on and this was by a filmmaker uh, pedro gonzalez bermudez looking at his filmography he almost seems like the you know like the Melk felcher of uh, uh spain or something because he just has done so many movies about movies so many documentaries about movies and he did one in 2010 called arbatos recordando uh ivan zulueta and according to what I have read about it, it is uh, Pedro Almodovar is in that film. Um, so we do finally get a little bit of that. But unfortunately, I can't find a copy and I can't obviously I can't find it in English if I can't find a copy even in Spanish. So, yeah, hopefully that's something that, you know, a little bit more attention, including the show. You know, maybe somebody will stumble upon the idea of putting this out there. There, uh, There is one director we haven't talked about that I think is, you know, we the American avant-garde was definitely a huge influence because uh, Zulota also got to spend some time in New York as an art student. And so that's where he kind of soaked up everything from Cassavetes to anger. But, uh, you know, one of the big links that I, that you can draw to his work is, you know, the work of Bunuel, uh, you know, and Dali, obviously, you know, uh, and that's pre-Franco. So there was a time where, you know, Spanish cinema was even more outrageous than this movie, but they definitely show some exterminating angel clips in one of the documentaries. I think it's the uh, Ivan Z one that definitely made a lot of sense to me to connect those, the, you know, the kind of instinct of those two filmmakers and what they're trying to get at. Because, you know, Bun- Bunuel's, you know, so, so fantastic at being able to be political without being political you know you can apply things through imagery and surrealism and that's it's yeah it's very rare and and one one last thing i i I found that zuleta said i just wrote down when i was watching one of the documentaries he wrote uh through heroin the user looks for another world within this one and i felt like that might be the key to the movie both the drugs and the films that i would you could replace that through movies the user looks for another world within this one so both heroin and movies i think have that duality to them you know in this case that we are looking for something more than life you know uh another movie you could reference lifeless ordinary um but you know we i do think we are pushing for experiences that we aren't able to fulfill in our uh the kind of traps or prisons that are us our bodies and our our day-to-day lives i think movies of getting to live other lives and experience other things i feel like that's where he's pushing for this ecstasy of feeling something other and something uh out of your control maybe which is it's i can totally it's funny you can it's it seems all abstract and hard to maybe discuss but i can totally i understand what he might be trying to get at anna sitting there looking at a betty boop doll for however many hours is that any different than us sitting in a dark theater staring at a screen for two hours yeah i mean because you know without 
the person having fill, filled the screen. It's just a screen. There's nothing there. You know, it's just blankness. So that relationship that needs to exist between the filmmaker and an audience uh, or the or the camera and the man is, yeah, it, it's all necessary and so it's really no different yeah than us uh, her sitting and looking at this doll because who knows if she's seeing nothing maybe she's seeing uh her memories played out and projecting herself onto it so yeah it's it's it all sounds like we're uh that we're high as fuck right now too uh on psychedelia but really there's there's a lot to it that i think it doesn't force you to dig into your own feelings and how you feel about movies and what what is that doing for you and your life how is it feeling um especially if you make you know 400 episodes of a a podcast every single week how do you do it mike how do you do it (laughs) i'm high on smack right now (laughs) good thank god (laughs) all right we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show your chance to improve your table conversation. Tell Michael you live in a big house and you spend £400 a week on clothes. I spend £400 a week on clothes. You eat in the best restaurants. I eat in the best restaurants. Georgina, try a little harder, please. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the cook, the thief, his wife, and maybe we'll even talk about her lover for good measure. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Elric Kane. So, Elric, what is new with you, sir? What's new with you? Um, You know what? I had notes that mentioned pure cinema, and they weren't actually meant to be about a plug for the show that I've started with, uh, with Brian Sauer, uh, which is a podcast, but they were actually really connected to this, which felt like what um, uh, Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera and all that, it felt like what uh, Pedro was trying to achieve, like this idea of what the French called you know, cinema pure, this idea of just pure movement and, and only what movies could do and nothing else could do. So that is the, the best segue you'll ever get to. <laughs> What's new with me? Uh, yeah, we're doing that podcast uh, Pure Cinema, and, we, and we're doing it in 12 run increments so as i don't uh have to kill myself like you do because i just can't i can't handle uh doing it every week sometimes uh so we're, do- we're doing that with little breaks and we've recorded uh, about three of season two already and we'll be putting that up probably not long actually i think right when this is airing uh season two will be kicking off so that will that should be good and there'll be an episode all about summer just that word whatever it means we're taking a few films each and looking at what the what uh, summer feels like for us with cinema and i'm having a lot of fun doing that still doing shockwaves and the heart for the horror fan listeners out there and uh i have fun doing that but uh pearson you know is able to go a little deeper into films and thank you know thank you because i do think part of me my desire to kind of delve more was from coming on here to talk about bad timing and stuff like thinking deeper about all sorts of the movies i, I loved so thank you for that oh well thank you for coming on i always appreciate talking movies with you 
And this is this is a complex one. We we might have to re-edit it back and forth, just like the movie. Yeah, I'll take this section and play that at the beginning. We've now done Arabato and Bad Timing and Stalker. I mean, you know, I don't know where we can go. Maybe maybe a Frank Perry movie. There's a lot of them on the docket this year. Or you know, maybe Beverly Hills Cop Three. Hey, I'm I'm down. Great George Lucas cameo. Elric, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show. And you can also subscribe to Pure Cinema while you're over there. You can also go over to Patreon and make a donation to this show and to Pure Cinema if you want. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.